Hi, this is Marlene, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Go to MarlenePardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit Strange Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Unsolved, the murders and disappearances on the Highway of Tears. The Highway of Tears is a corridor that runs between Prince George and Prince Rupert in British Columbia, Canada. The stretch measures about 450 miles, and it's been known for many missing and murdered Indigenous women. Some of them are found, others are never found. Some of these disappearances started back in 1970. According to the Mounted Police in Canada, the victims or potential witnesses number 18, but if you ask the locals, the number actually exceeds 40. And the question begs to be asked, are many of these women and girls victims of one or more than one serial killer? These are the toughest cases to solve as many of them go out there on the road and hitchhike. And there is no way of knowing who they get into a vehicle or a truck with. It might be a friend, it might be a kind stranger, or it might be a killer. Take, for example, the disappearance of Maddie Scott. Maddie Scott was a young woman. She was camping and she went missing in 2011. And her disappearance is a total mystery. No one has heard anything from her. And the police did a very thorough investigation. They went up uh, in an airplane by water. They searched the grounds and there was no sign of her at the lake where she was camping at. And the police, despite the passage of years, are still trying to figure out what happened to her. And unfortunately, some wonder if she might have fallen prey to whoever has killed other women on Highway 16. Maddie's parents come back to the place where she disappeared and they still can't understand how she could have disappeared without a trace. She camped there back in May 27th, 2011 after joining some friends at a party. It was just a group of kids at a birthday party and camping out for that night. The day after the party, her parent tried to reach her, but it went to voicemail. But at that point, they weren't worried because they were thinking that 
the cell service was spotty there and they thought that that was the reason why she didn't answer the phone or call them back. Hogsback Lake, which is where Maddie was at, is only a 15 minute drive from where her parents lived. And after a while, they went out there when they realized that she had not called them back and they had not been able to speak to her. Maddie uh, lived in a small town called Vanderhoof, which happens to be right on what the, the locals call the Highway of Tears or Highway 16. Since 1969, several women have been missing or haven't actually been discovered to be murdered. And many of them are like Maddie. They, they have basically seemed like they've been swallowed by the earth. When uh, Maddie's parents went out there to the lake to look for her that Sunday, they did not think about how close that highway was to the area, the camping area. They, at that point, they were just trying to find out where their daughter was at. And now they found her purse and her backpack inside her locked truck. And it was at this point that they start to panic because she would never have gone anywhere without either of these two items. They called uh, the police who raced over, but they couldn't find any trace of her whatsoever. But the more they tried to look for somebody that knew or saw something, they couldn't come up with anybody that could give them a lead. So they developed a profile about her. She was close to her siblings. She was working with her dad after she graduated from high school. She was well-liked. She... She didn't have any enemies in her, in her town. She liked sports. There was nothing there, a red flag that could indicate why anyone would want to harm her or kidnap her or that she would have run away if that was the case. The police spoke to the 50 or so people that attended the party. They spoke to each and every one of them and they asked hard questions and they were wondering why she had been left alone at the lake and unfortunately one by one they all packed up their things and they left even one of her friends who said originally that she was going to stay turned out not to do that and left and they parents her parents especially wonder why nobody either stayed with her or convinced her not to stay there by herself the area around where she disappeared is miles and miles of wilderness with a very rough terrain that in order to search it is a daunting task. And her parents, what they did was they started their own investigation, trying to make sense of what happened during starting with the people that were at the party, you know, if they brought somebody with them and when they left, who they left with, trying always to get some type of clue, some type of answer that will lead them to how they can somehow find her. They retrace her whole day from uh, cameras at certain places where she stopped at earlier in the day just to see if maybe they find maybe somebody that was even then maybe shadowing her and eventually followed her to where she went. But the parents always circle back to that question as to why she was left alone and nobody stayed there with her. One of the girls that was supposed to stay with Maddie tells how originally it was just going to be a bunch of friends, but then it got posted on social media. And then a lot of people that weren't part of the original group that had been invited showed up. So there was a lot of people there that 
that were not known. And she describes where things started to get rough. Her friend left at around 1 a.m. And by 10 a.m., she came back to find Maddie. And she was gone. She looked around. But she did notice that the tent that Maddie had stayed in was a real mess. Her, uh, her rings that she had taken off were strewn around the uh, outside. Her earrings, all of the things that maybe she took off when she was going to sleep. The investigation spread outward and they found that she was involved with a 28-year-old logger, father of a child. And her friend considers that he was bad news because he led a troubled life and he owed a lot of money to drug dealers so it did seem that there was a reason that he might have somebody coming to get him and maybe took her in order for him to pay up and uh make things square with them as to the money that they owed he voluntarily took a lie detector test and he passed because of course he was looked at hard as a suspect whether he did it or he knew something about what happened. However, two days later after the test, he disappeared. And two weeks later, they found his severed head in an abandoned house in a nearby town. They still haven't found the rest of his body. His name is Bjornsson. And just like Maddie's disappearance, his murder until this day remains unsolved. Maddie's parents are not alone. Six months earlier in the same town, Another girl disappeared. Her name was Lauren. On uh, November 27, 2010, Lauren Leslie's father receives a call from police, uh, from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, asking if his daughter's home, and she wasn't. And they don't give him much information, and they promise they're going to call him back, and they don't. So, of course, he's very worried, and he gets in his vehicle, and he drives uh, down a road that eventually leads into a Highway 16, a Highway of Tears. And he figures, because it's the early morning hours, he should uh, very easily find where there's police officers. And that's exactly what happened. He goes up to where they're at, and apparently a police officer sees something suspicious on a certain vehicle and pulls it over. Out of a, a logging road, a black pickup pulls out. A 20-year-old kid's behind the wheel. He questions him, asks for the ID, but the police officer doesn't like the way he's acting. But he's thinking that maybe he had been poaching. So he follows the tire tracks in the snow, thinking he finds a 15-year-old girl that had just been dumped there. It wasn't an animal. It was a girl. And that girl was Leslie. And when her father arrived, this is exactly in the middle of their investigation. And of course, they were very hesitant. They did not want to tell him exactly what they had found at the end of that logging road. They told her father they were having a problem identifying her. And he told them to check for a certain tattoo that she had on her arm. And uh, it's a family motto. And... The police found the tattoo and his worst fears came true because the victim was his daughter, Lauren. Uh, she'd been raped, hit with a pipe wrench over the head and her throat was slit. And it was 
mostly sheer luck that the perpetrator was stopped on what was basically suspected of being a poacher. 20-year-old Corey Legibakov was the young man that was stopped by police and uh, they're realizing that despite his youth, there is more to him than what that police officer originally assumed. It seems that this uh, Corey was very active on social media and he used the name One Country Boy. And it seems that this is where Lauren actually uh, got to know him and unfortunately became too trusting. And from there, possibly, they agreed to meet. He was a local boy who lived in a regular house close by and he seemed like the all Canadian boy and uh, he was a popular guy. He graduated, got along with everybody. No one would ever suspect that there was something darker. But when the police start going into his background, eventually they were able to tie him to the murder of three other girls. This, it turned out, was a homegrown serial killer. He was charged with three counts of first-degree murder. They, the victims, had disappeared between 2009 to 2010. It was, for lack of a better word, a 19-year-old serial killer. And uh, the police at some point believed that there might be even other victims besides the ones that he was charged with their murders and or disappearance. One of Lauren's friends met him once and she said she didn't like his eyes, that, that he looked angry, that his eyes looked angry. And this was long before, of course, that he was accused of being a murderer. So once the, uh, he was charged with three other murders besides that of Lauren Leslie, others looked to all the other disappearances and murders on Highway 16 and wonder if he's connected to them even though in some instances it would have been impossible since these crimes date all the way back to 1969-1970, which he had not even been born at that time. Corey Legibakov was apprehended, but even though that solved the murder of Lauren and the other three girls, it still left uh, an unanswered question as to what happened to Maddie Scott because this occurred six months before she went missing. Reviewing uh, the case files that the police have of the string of murders and disappearances on Highway 16, uh, they have interviewed at least 60,000 persons and during that time period there have been 1,400 people of interest that uh, they have looked at as being uh, involved or guilty of the murder or disappearances of one or more of the women. The police realized that there are other killers out there which are cruising that highway looking for victims. And uh, among the many that they stopped and questioned, they found very troubling results. 
they have found men with, for example, vans with the doorknob missing from the inside of the door, plastic wrist uh, restraints, um, duct tape. Um, very troubling, indeed, unusual things for somebody to be carrying a around. But that's as far as they can go with that because without any proof to connect them to any of these murders, that's... That's just very troubling because there's nothing that they can do further than just to question them. Some victims have been found along the highway, others by hikers. Delphine Nikai disappeared in 1990. In 1974, 14-year-old Monica Ignis, uh, December of 1974, disappeared. Uh, she was thought to be going home from school and she was last seen at around 11 p.m. on the 13th of December in the town of Thornhill. She was walking alone and her body was found in a gravel pit uh, several months later on April the 6th, 1975, near the uh, Seelger or Forest Service Road. Two witnesses saw uh, a car pulled over to the side of the road that night that she dis disappeared and they saw a man and a passenger who looked like a girl inside the vehicle. Monica was strangled. And uh, if you stand at the spot where they discovered her body, you can hear the traffic from Highway 16. That's how close it is to the Highway of Tears. Indeed, it seemed that some families suffered more than others. For example, in October of 1989, 15-year-old Cecilia Ann Nicole uh, went missing. Now, the reports of her last uh, known location vary. Uh, she was reported in Smithers near Highway 16, but the family reports that she may have moved over to Vancouver Island, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police reported her last in Vancouver, but they could not confirm this with the family. Now, this occurred a year before her cousin, Delphi Nicole, went missing, and they had a cousin named... Roberta Nacal, who was murdered a few years after Delphine disappeared. In June of 1990, uh, Delphine Nacal uh, vanished. She was uh, last seen hitchhiking along Highway 16, and she was on her way home to Taqua, British Columbia. And at around 10 p.m., she called her uncle to tell him that she was on her way home from Smithers, and two of her friends saw her hitchhiking in the eastbound lane of the highway. As she went missing again about a year after her other cousin, Cecilia, went missing. And uh, one has to wonder, was she the victim of the same perpetrator? Roberta Nacal, she disappeared in 1988. She was a 19-year-old indigenous woman. And she um, had left a camping trip at Cultus Lake, British Columbia, near Siri. She was uh, with friends only a day earlier, and she told them she, she was going to make her way to the bus stop on her own. However, once she left, uh, her friends, which were the last ones to see her, never saw her again. One of the witnesses did see her speaking with a man in a red sports car along the side of the road, and the witness said that he had light hair and a pronounced jaw. Um, 
And again, what makes this especially sad is that two of her cousins, Delphine and Celia, also went missing in 1990 and in 1989, respectively. In April of 1995, on a lonely road, of course, right off Highway 16, two hunters are moose hunting, and uh, they stumbled across the remains of Ramona Wilson. She went missing from Smithers in 1994. Strangely enough, uh, several items were organized a few feet away from her. Uh, the objects included a half-buried section of rope, just a small section, uh, three interlocking nylon ties, and a small pink brass knuckles type water pistol. Again, like all these other murders, uh, no one uh, has ever been arrested. Tamara Chipman went missing uh, in September of 2005. She's 22 years old and uh, at about uh, 4.30 she was seen uh, hitchhiking east on Highway 16. This was close to the Rupert Industrial Park. Now it's believed she was trying to get back home. Uh, she lived in Thornhill, British Columbia and uh, at that time she was facing assault charges uh, and uh, she had made a promise to appear uh, on that same date uh, that she disappeared. Uh, she was supposed to appear in court and that was the same date that no one saw her after that. Uh, according to her father, uh, she was in Prince Rupert visiting friends and her mother and uh, after that time she's never touched her bank account. Uh, she was a tall girl and she was known to wear wigs and uh, finally her dad reported her missing in November of 2005 uh, with the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police for that area and they uh, they made several search efforts. They were aided by uh, family, friends, volunteers. Uh, they went and they looked down every logging road between Rupert and Terrace and they even uh, searched uh, in Vancouver's downtown east side. But as of this date, no, uh, nothing's been found, neither her body or anything else about Tamara. However, not all murders or disappearances would, uh, would linger and stay unanswered and unresolved. Uh, there was one girl, her name was Colleen McMillan. She was killed in 1974. She'd been hitchhiking and for many, many years, there had been no arrests made. Uh, and it was, as far as cold cases were concerned, it was a very cold case. But with the advances of DNA, uh, there was material found on Colleen's body that finally were connected to a man. It was a man by the name of Bobby Jack Fowler. Uh, he was uh, born in 1939. He was originally from Texas. And during those years, he moved to about 11 or 12 different states throughout the United States. And along the way, he racked up a very extensive criminal history, uh, which included serious offenses such as murder, sexual assault, kidnapping, attempted rape, assault. And uh, he was one of these persons that if he wanted something he didn't care about the consequences. He was a drug addict and he was very violent. Uh, many times he worked as a construction worker, or as a roofer, um, a very transient type of lifestyle. He moved 
around and he just drove a beat up car and uh, when he wasn't working, he would spend his free time in bars and motels and pick up hitchhikers. And to him, any woman that was hitchhiking uh, or that he picked up in a bar really uh, were fair game to be sexually assaulted. And in 1969, he was arrested for murdering a man and a woman in Texas. But he was able to get it off only with discharging a firearm within city limits. Uh, now, in that same year, he also spent time in a Tennessee prison for attempted murder and sexual assault. And uh, the way he looked at it, uh, the attempted murder involved uh, tying a woman up, beating the hell out of her with her own belt, covering her with brush, and leaving her to die. Um, even though <clears throat> he was suspected, he was never convicted of murder. And not only in the United States, but in Canada, uh, Several murders were presumed to have been committed by him. Uh, in 74, he worked for a roofing company in Prince George, and he would often travel down Highway 16. And um, the Royal uh, Canadian Mounted Police believe that he's responsible for it, maybe at least 10 murders along the highway. And there's others that think that uh, it's even more. It might be as much as 20. Now, some of the evidence is circumstantial. Uh, just because he was in the area doesn't mean that he actually murdered anybody. But a lot of them uh, did follow his M.O. Now, in uh, June of 95, he was arrested in Newport, Oregon. When a woman jumped out of a second-story window, she was bleeding, naked. She still had a rope tied to her ankle. And uh, basically, she did just escape from uh, Bobby. And she told the police uh, what uh, he did to her. Now, in uh, January of 96, he was convicted of kidnapping in the first degree, attempted rape, sexual abuse, coercion, uh, assault, menacing. And for this, he was sentenced to 195 months with the possibility of parole. Now, uh, Bobby Jack Fowler, which is his full name, he died back in 2006 at the age of 66 uh, from lung cancer. He was doing time in Oregon State Penitentiary. Now, in uh, 2012, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police named him as a suspect in the murder of the 1974 uh, disappearance and the subsequent discovery of her body of 16-year-old Colleen McMillan. Uh, she had gone out uh, hitchhiking. She tells her little brother, don't tell mom that I'm doing this. And she was never seen again. Now, one month after her disappearance, her body was found about 50 kilometers from her home at the 100-mile house. Uh, the police uh, found her blouse. But originally at that time, the technology didn't exist as far as to uh, match forensics and DNA. Uh, but they did keep the materials. Uh, and they, they stored the blouse safely so that it could be used later on in court uh, in 2007, uh, what, at least three decades after her murder. Uh, the police looked at the blouse and were able to find a small sample of DNA from an unknown male. Uh, and they tried to match it up within their databases in Canada. Then in um, 2012, this was 38 years after she went missing. DNA technology got to the point 
that even very small samples could be tested. And the, the Canadian police were able to get a profile from that small fragment that they had taken from her blouse. It was submitted to Interpol, which is a very got a very large database. Uh, and they were just hoping, uh, believing that maybe if he was not a Canadian national, that he was from another country and they would find a match. And they were supposed, they were very surprised to find that Interpol found something in their database and that it matched Bobby Jack Fowler. Now, he had a very extensive criminal history here in the United States. Uh, and in truth, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police didn't know anything about him. Uh, in Canada, he had no criminal records. Uh, as a matter of fact, they didn't even have records that he had come into the country. But again, this happened during the 1970s when security between United States and Canada was lax or almost didn't exist. Uh, you could cross the border back and forth, uh, just showing basically your, your driver's license to a border guard. Um, they didn't even take down uh, your your license number, anything like that. Now, once the Canadian police started to investigate uh, Bobby Fowler, uh, they started linking him to the murders of Pamela Darlington and Gail Ways. These were two other women uh, who were on the official list of the Highway of Tears victims. Now, there's a task force that was assembled to investigate the Highway of Tears. It's uh, named EPANA. And right now, only 18 people or 18 victims are in its official list. But there's other groups that consider that that number falls short of how many women really uh, have disappeared along that highway. They, they place it at uh, closer to 40, and as time goes by, the list continues. Now, uh, Bobby Fowler is linked to two double homicides in Oregon. Uh, Sheila Swanson and Melissa Sanders in Oregon back in 1992. They're last seen making a call from a payphone near the Beverly Beach State Park. And their bodies, both of their bodies, were found six months later. Then in January of 1995, Jennifer Essen and Cara are last seen in Newport, Oregon. Their bodies, their strangled bodies were found a month later. That was six months before he kidnapped and sexually assaulted the woman that jumped out the second story window with that rope town around her ankle. Now, uh, United States law enforcement believed that he may have killed 20 people or more. Uh, and uh, in truth, this places him in the serial killer category. Uh, now, again, he's suspected of being a serial killer, but he was never actually convicted of murder. But in truth, he did operate for a very long time along the Highway of Tears. Even though he might not be the actual serial killer that's thought to haunt that area, that he's responsible possibly for some of the disappearances is very possible. Uh, the thing is that he was in custody at the time that some of the murders were committed, or he was in totally different areas. And uh, in other words, that it would have been impossible for him to have been the perpetrator. In truth, uh, the, the probability is that there is more than one serial killer, and he was just one of them. So why have uh, these murders and uh, 
disappearances existed for so long. Some of the explanations for these, uh, for the endurance uh, in uh, either uh, identifying uh, persons of interest or the actual culprit uh, sometimes stems back to what makes many of these victims vulnerable. In that area, there's uh, poverty, drug abuse, widespread domestic violence, uh, a lower uh, social economic status sometimes uh, leads to very few of them being able to own a car and thus they turn to hitchhiking as the only way to travel the long distances to either see family, go to work, school, or even to go to the doctor. Another factor um, is because this area lends itself because of its isolation for uh, abductions and murders with no witnesses to see what happened. Uh, it's isolated, it's remote, uh, soft soil in many of the areas. It's well populated with carnivorous uh, predators like bears who, if a body is dumped, they will carry away the remains, uh, making it sometimes near to impossible to discover them even uh, months or years afterwards. Uh, and of, of course, you know, if you have, whether it's a lone perpetrator or a serial killer, uh, these afford the, the, the perfect opportunities, moments, so that they think that they can get away with committing attacks and murder. Uh, they can not only uh, commit the crime, they can actually go ahead then and hide the evidence. Despite the length of time that murders have been committed there on Highway 16, it wasn't until 1998 that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police looked at all of them, uh, the ones that occurred there on, uh, on the Highway of Tears as being linked. In other words, that uh, even though the victims might not have known each other or there was no connection between them, that there was a very good possibility that they had been murdered by the same person. Now, to date, uh, a number of people have been convicted in cases that are related to the Highway of Tears. Three serial killers are among those. They are Brian Peter Arp, Edward Dennis Isaac, and Coley Lechbikoff. And of course, even uh, Bobby Fowler, who was implicated in numerous uh, non-Highway of Tears, or what they call EPANA cases, uh, publicly, uh, and he died in prison, and he wasn't charged with any of the deaths. Many believe that he was linked to uh, the cases because he worked for the uh, for a company that's now closed, which is the Prince George uh, company called Happy Roofing in 1974. Uh, and there is a cluster of girls that went missing or were found later murdered, very similar in age, from that area. In 2009, the police uh, went to a property in Alpierre. This is in rural Prince George. And they went searching for a girl named Nicole Hoare. She was a young tree planter and she went missing on June 21st, 2002 on Highway 16. Now, this piece of property was once was owned by a man by the name of 
Leland Chubby Vincent Switzer, who was uh, serving a prison sentence for second-degree murder of his brother. And as of 2016, he is out on parole. Uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police searched the property not only for Nicole Hoare, but of course for any of the other missing women from the Highway of Tears, but nothing came of it. And uh, they admit that many of these cases uh, will never be solved uh, unless maybe you get what they call a deathbed confession or like what happened with Colleen, uh, a DNA match. And again, it all comes down to that they do have people of interest in many of these cases, but like everything else, if you don't have enough evidence to charge them, then their hands are tied. And at that point, you could say that some of these murderers uh, get away without, uh, without being convicted and there is no justice for the victims.